0: Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings.
1: Welcome to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking their secrets to success. Today, we have Kevin Moyer of SACS Capital Advisors, partner and leader of their Transaction Advisory Services team. Welcome, Kevin, and thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate that, Alex. Thank you for
0: having me. So, Kevin, as his customer, if you could share a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Yeah, absolutely. So, as mentioned, Kevin Moyer, I'm a partner and the practice lead for the Transaction Strategy and Transformation Group within Saks Capital Advisors. Saks Capital Advisors is a wholly owned subsidiary of Saks LLP, a top 75 public accounting firm. Within my practice, we tend to focus on two key crucial areas within a transaction lifecycle. The first being diligence, when you think financial, operational, or commercial. And the second being more focused on performance improvement. That tends to be much more focused on private equity-backed portfolio companies. And we see a variety of different levers or engagements within that space. Prior to joining SACS, I was a member of the transaction strategy and execution team at Ernst and Young Parthenon, which is a deal-focused strategy consulting firm. And preceding that, myself was a private equity-backed portfolio company CFO in the aerospace and defense industry.
1: Interesting, certainly PE-backed CFO place. We do a, a significant amount of the work for searches in a very successful area and, uh, and very interesting space. So, what's one mistake that you see private equity firms or portfolio companies? Making Kevin and what actions would you suggest to them?
0: That's a great question. I think in the current environment, we're still seeing a lot of M&A activity where cost of capital is very high. The multiples are still in, in many industries overpriced. You may be trading 100 to 200 basis points above where they should be or where the market feels they should be. And what what I see more frequently is private equity backed portfolio companies taking their eye off the ball as it relates to getting their own house in order, right? So when you think of performance improvement, as touched on earlier, w- within a platform company, I tend to believe in many cases that not all, but a few private equity managers or, or portfolio company leadership may be more focused on the accretion they'll get from bolting on a company to the platform via multiple and maybe take a little bit off the foot off the gas, if you will, as it relates to really optimizing their internal operations of, of said platform. So when you think of things from working capital management, your order to cash, procure to pay methodology and releasing embedded liquidity, I do think that a lot of portfolio companies that we've assessed tend to have a lot of embedded liquidity within them that they've just failed to extract by not having a proper process or program in place. That's just one example of kind of the performance improvement initiatives, but overarchingly circles back to the fact of getting your own house in order before maybe bringing other potential companies to bolt on within the platform company.
1: So you mentioned the cost of capital. Everyone's aware of what's going on in the market and the impending potential recession. Nobody obviously knows. What are you seeing private equity firms and their portfolio companies doing to, in addition to what you just mentioned, preparing for this or what you seeing the best ones do in order to prepare for this capital increase expenditure?
0: You know, I think when I look at the, what I would deem to be maybe the best of the best in class upstream private equity firms, it's an interesting catch-22, right? Because you're in theoretically still an overpriced market, right? Where multiples again are driving well and above and beyond what maybe participants in the market would anticipate. But on the other flip side, you have private equity firms who have just tremendous cash on the sidelines, right? So they're sitting on dry powder with an inherent cost of capital. The only way to really offset said cost of capital is to deploy it, right? Deploy it into transactions and by way of that, start start taking operating revenues or what have you from the company. So what I've seen probably the most successful do now is truth be told, be patient. It circles back to understanding their own portfolio a little more intimately to be that much more selective when they do bolt on. Inevitably, there's many market analysts stating that we are in the new interest rate environment for the go forward, right? So everyone should quote unquote, get used to it. So I think you see a lot of maybe tactical strategies around delevering, trying to understand what, what capital stack maybe looks the best traditionally. Maybe you were higher leverage, less equity now, and maybe more of a more of an equilibrium, if you will. So I think that it's being assessed both at the transaction level a little bit differently, the best of the best level, as well as the existing portfolio company level, again, where you think of, I have these assets or this asset, how do I fully optimize it before, again, I bring another asset into the equation? Because ultimately in the private equity space, when you think of scale, you think of consolidation or aggregation, in theory, the more bolt-ons you have and the higher your even other greater your multiple will be in many industries. But again, you want quality assets, right? You don't want just to acquire paying 100 to 200 basis points higher than you should just to acquire. And again, that to me is what's separating maybe the average or the, the subpar, if you will, managers from the great. It's just patience and very disciplined in their thematic investing strategy, if you will.
1: Interesting, interesting. And you've worked both in a chief financial officer role within two aerospace P backed companies. What made you made the transition from that to doing what you do now?
0: It's interesting. Myself and a former colleague, who's now it, one of the big four, we were pulled in when the, the current management team, we, you know, as a private equity group, kind of lifted them out of the structure. And we came in in kind of a very distressed turnaround restructuring scenario. And the overarching kind of goal that, that we had when we started versus where we ended was, was very different. The goal for us originally was stability. Once we achieved that, we went a step further and said, you know what, There's, there is a lot of operational improvements here, a lot of maybe integration efforts that, that weren't done at the onset that we could follow through on. So inherently, that turned into its own consulting project, right? Obviously, we we're part of the private equity fund. We were in our own portfolio company, but we viewed it as such. And I think that is really what gave me the indirect exposure, if you will, to more of a consultancy mindset and thinking much more logically and methodically about how we view the world as it relates to what is optimal mean to this industry versus that industry versus another and that's what segued directly my path into parthenon and where i started working with large corporate clients private equity backed clients in the upstream and mainly focus on sell and separate works so i was much more on the carve out spin divestiture side of things but it was just fascinating and had an opportunity with Sachs to run a practice and we are a hyper-growth firm right now. We've acquired four firms in last year, and we're probably on pace to do some more this year. For me, it's just being able to add value in, in different industries. Nothing's ever the same, which I enjoy, of course. And going from various disciplines, when you think of going from an FDD, financial due diligence, rolling into a, you know, maybe it's a 13-week cash flow on a, on a turnaround restructuring project.
1: Well, having done the role that you're doing now, and that advisory work, which gives you lots of access to different portfolio companies, different private equity firms, what would, what do you wish that you knew when you were running those two P-back businesses that you've learned during the year, your current role at Parthenon?
0: I think that what I did not put a big emphasis on at the time was a KPI dashboarding, right? So I felt like in many cases, as a CFO versus consultancy, where in theory, in many cases, you're building the dashboard to be more proactive. I feel like I, I was a little bit more reactive, where something would take place, or maybe it was covenant testing, maybe it was fixed charge coverage ratio testing that. We could have got ahead of, but again, and we had the data to do. It. We just didn't cross cut that data into something that was much more dynamic in real time. I think for me, it's, it just goes back to the philosophy of intimately knowing the company you're with, whether it be portfolio company, whether it be founder own company, et cetera, and using data to your advantage, right? There is, there's is data sets that exist within companies that many companies don't know how to use the data, how to structure unstructured data. And I think that was the biggest takeaway as I look back. Having now being in consulting is really how to take unstructured data and use it to my advantage as it relates to a predictive mechanism going forward. And I think by way of having that, you're that much more dangerous in your role as a CFO or in the C-suite to better understand you know, what may be coming you know, in front of you in adapting and pivoting before that event happens.
1: What examples have you got that you did of that and what were the results of, of implementing that, that dashboard and running with data?
0: Sure. Sure. You know, I think that we used to, going back to my prior firm, we used to do a lot of that when we think through integrations, right? When you think about an integration, and this is directly applicable to private equity as they acquire, there are so many moving pieces. You may have shared back offices. You may have duplicative nature of functional roles within finance and accounting, IT, et cetera. You may have legal entity rationalization that's taking place, right? So I think that a dashboard in that sense, to me, was very powerful. When you think of a proper management of an integration play, from day one to 60, 61 to 90, 91 to 120, and then on a go for each step in each phase is very different. And you're going to track different metrics. So you know, I think by way of taking the data you have and kind of using that as your goalpost, if you will, I think to me, that was a very powerful way to number one, stay on target. And number two, making sure that while we're working, we were working in optimizing. We weren't just working in a stagnant form. So to me, that's a very real life example. And this was done at a large corporate public company. So if it could be done there, it certainly can be done in the lower middle or middle market in a private equity backed company as well.
1: Sorry to interrupt here. Just a quick note to highlight our new sponsor, Grata. The private equity market is rapidly shifting to a data driven, proprietary deal sourcing standard. Grata provides the window into over 7 million middle market private companies. Contact Grata so you can access the market first. Request a demo at www.grata.com. Now back to the podcast. What advice would you give to portfolio companies having been in that CFO seat, now seeing a lot more of what you've seen? What advice would you be giving to chief financial officers to drive improvements within their portfolio?
0: I think, again, it for me, in that seat, a lot of it goes back to data. You know, There's a lot of data at the fingertips of CFOs in, in public and private companies. Use it to your advantage. There's tremendous tools and softwares. There's Power BI, Tableau, data visualization tools that are very powerful and, and they do have a use. So I think, again, for me, it's always trying to be ahead of the curve and in, in not be in a position of defense, whereas you can play offense, even in, in a high interest rate market. When you think about banks right now, banks are tightening their credit requirements for both current borrowers and new borrowers. So the ability to go to the market, public or private, and get debt capital is, is not easy today. So seeing that kind of gov- coming downstream, I think CFOs need to develop a playbook that is sustainable to them in their companies specifically within the market environment that we're in currently and in, in what they may foresee in the future. To your earlier point, Alex, this environment we're in could get a little bit better. It could get very worse. Those are, I think, the two options of the economic environment, macroeconomic environment we're in today. And I tend to believe, not being a pessimist, but I tend to believe it's probably going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. So knowing that, it's what does my playbook look like within my company that needs be put in place to sustain and to try to thrive in that environment. There's companies that did very well in COVID. A lot of them were technology-based companies, but they understood their environment, they understood their company, and they leveraged their tools and their clients to do very well, right? And there's brick-and-mortar companies that survived during the COVID pandemic. So I think when, when we think about a recession, which to me was much more predictable than a black swan event like a pandemic, I think that, again, it comes back to the intimacy of knowing your company and really your KPIs and metrics to, to drive forward versus driving in reverse. That, that's probably my piece of advice.
1: Perfect. Appreciate that. Well, just looking, if you're in position now, a CFO role, and you talked about those playbooks and preparing, if we do see a worsening of the market, what's one or two things that you'd be working on at the moment to prepare the business and offset? What could be a treacherous time?
0: That's uh, a great question. I think one of which would really be understanding my AR concentration, right? When I think of my customers and who we're extending credit to, what is their capability or more? What is their exposure within their own infrastructure or supply chain where it could affect payment to us? You know, if we see cash start to tighten, our only reliance at that point is back on our credit facility, whether it be ABL or otherwise. And I think understanding the composition of the AR aging and the makeup of the customer base and how they can sustain a recession or a downturn in the economy is crucial. And on the flip side of that, I would say the same for vendor relationships, right? If you have a key critical vendor who's not going to be able to withstand or be able to survive a downturn, you're going to have to really start shuffling your feet quickly to understand how you're going to replace that vendor. So that goes back to the proactive nature versus being reactive when you get the notice stating, hey, we loved working with you, but unfortunately, we're going out of business tomorrow. You know, at that point, then it becomes survival. What are we going to do? Again, I, it sounds elementary, but I think fundamentally, those two items are very important because without cash coming in and reliable vendors, cash going out, the business might not sustain itself. And I think that net of that, probably, I would look at the functional areas w- within my company and really understand no one wants to go through a ta- uh, cost takeout kind of mechanism, if you will, but really understanding at the end of the day, do I have duplication of efforts? Meaning do, am I overstaffed by way of benchmarking? in the F and A function, or should I be outsourcing this, right? And maybe that cut costs tremendously. So I think that's probably the second core avenue that I would explore is a CFO kind of going into what may become a recession.
1: Perfect. Appreciate that insight. So what do you love I've seen so many different facets of private equity? Sure. What do you love about a private equity industry and equally what do you dislike about it?
0: I think I'll start with what I love. I think that it's ever changing, it's very fast-paced. Private equity tends in many industries to set the trends, right? Set the trends of both multiples in industries that, that they're making heavy bets on that they feel will be industries of the future, if you will. We're seeing a lot of advancements in technology. You look at the IoT, the Internet of Things. You look at AI. You look at VR. You look at XR. The developments in that space are just, to me, incredible. And you see a lot of that in healthcare, too. I think healthcare is another very defensive industry. We, we tend to do a lot in healthcare, and I tend to maybe focus a little bit there. Where you just see innovations at either the pharmaceutical level, the devices and services level, kind of, et cetera, that it's just mind blowing, right? What you're seeing portfolio companies doing and kind of what their innovation looks like. So I think that I love the innovation. I love the nature of the fast paced deal trajectory that you see in private equity and probably the depth of analysis that really takes place when looking in a transaction, both financial, commercial, and otherwise. You know, when I think of things that, that maybe I, I won't say I don't like, but there's certainly some areas where I think, you know, private equity could probably become a little bit more efficient. We see a lot of funds who will raise and close fund one, start deploying and immediately start the fundraise for fund two. At the same time, maybe hyper-focusing in a limited market, right? So you see a lot of dry powder. And you and what that creates, and this is the part I don't like, what that creates is you may have someone move the market from a multiple perspective and reset it artificially, right? So a market that's trading at six times is now trading at eight times because private equity company had to deploy capital, right? And they overpaid. So I think there's a lot of market distortion going on. Again, and I think a lot of that goes to just capital that's sitting on the sidelines that needs deployed. And it's more cost-effective and strategic or tactical for them to deploy today versus, versus wait for multiples to come down. So I think that's a little bit of a nuance because once the market resets from our side, we see maybe deals that would have gone through fall to the wayside, if you will.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And what educational resources would you read, do you watch, do you
0: listen that you would
1: recommend the others check out?
0: I tend to, this is probably personal. So I tend to listen a lot to Jonathan Gray from Blackstone is one that that I, I just love listening to. I think that he is he was a real estate guru for Blackstone when he went in and scaled them from what they were to what they are today. Now I believe he's the president COO. So anytime he's either on CNBC or otherwise, I tend to listen there. When I think of more personal listening, I do like, I tend to like guys like Jocko Willing. And I just think he has a great demeanor about himself. He really preaches discipline and kind of a stoic mindset. And the reason that I think that the stoic aspect is unique for the deal space is I've seen many times people get very, very emotional in transactions and they kind of take their eye off the ball. And I think that only has harmful effects. So I think the more that one can discipline themselves and one can control their emotions and maybe think through situations a little bit differently, maybe stepping outside of the situation to look at it from a third-party perspective, stuff like that. And I think that can be a make or break in many cases of deals. Again, I have seen transactions fall through just by way of two parties butting heads. Nothing to do with the economics. And I think a lot of that has to do with egoity and personality. So any way that can be circumvented to where it's put to the side for the transaction, I think it's going to be beneficial for both parties. I tend to listen to those two parties. I read a lot of, when you think of Bloomberg, Street.com, kind of market-moving news to, to really understand, to your point, macroeconomic level, what's going on, right? What's going on? Geopolitically, what's going on when we think of interest rates in other countries? What's going on in the Asian IPO market for that matter? And how's that tracking to the US IPO market? So I would go as broad as that to as local as I'm based in Cleveland. So, you know, Cranes Cleveland, right? What companies are trading locally in items like that? So I think that what I have learned is we will never know everything, any of us, right? There's always things that we need to learn. It's understanding, number one, I think, how you best take in information. Guys like Warren Buffett will read, I think, 14 hours a day or 12 hours a day, whatever number that is. That doesn't work for me. But maybe listening to a podcast for an hour could reset my mind to to better focus going throughout the day. So I think it's just everyone needs to find what works for them and what interests them. And I think once they lean heavily into what interests them, that that's a good blueprint to start on a path to success at the end of the day.
1: Excellent. If anybody wishes to reach out to you, Kevin Post this podcast, how best do they get in touch, please?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm always accessible via email or phone. I don't know, Alex, if you want me to give those now or maybe it'll be posted later. But but would certainly say if either of those don't work, feel free to connect on LinkedIn and send a message. Would love talking to people throughout the industry, banks, private equity funds, other advisors, and, and just continuing to uh, to learn and grow as a professional.
1: Yeah, perfect. we'll pop all that in the show notes. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Kevin. I really appreciate your insight and sharing your unique perspective into private equity. I've interviewed sure. plenty of private equity investors turned operators, operators turned private equity investors, but never an operator turned accounting, transaction services, etc. Sure. Uh, that background. So thank you very much for sharing everything you have.
0: Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed it, Alex.
1: And as always, thank you very much for those listening, for joining us. Should you ever need support with private equity professional hiring or portfolio executives across Europe and North America, please do reach out to us A real selection. Until the next time, Keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.